This podcast is presented to you by a new series, The Clergy Confessions Podcast, now available wherever you get your podcast. Listen to ministers share truly awful experiences in anonymity. In this first season, you will hear stories of a minister fighting for maternity leave deep into her pregnancy, a pastor being fired for discovering an embezzlement scheme by the deacon board, an associate pastor finding his senior pastor and office administrator having an affair on church property, and so much more. Visit clergyconfessions.com. Follow Clergy Confessions on Instagram, Facebook, and whatever Twitter's called now. As we think through um, kind of church context, if you will. So much of, of the church landscape is changing. Uh, for many, the role of preacher and pastoral care provider is transforming into buildings, building maintenance and pathfinder into unknown territory with fewer resources and smaller staffs. Um, we know the rate of church closures is, is staggering. You know, CBFNC is developing an entire initiative around helping churches examine their sustainability and vitality in the coming years. Wilshire, you know, has been blessed as a church with a great amount of resources. If you had pastored uh, in a different church, how do you think you would have shifted your role within the reality of many church landscape today? Welcome to the CBF Podcast Conversation. We know that conversations matter, so each week we are grinding through the critical research to bring you the best stories and resources of people doing groundbreaking and innovative work in renewing God's world. I'm Edna Hale, your podcast host. This year we're celebrating our eighth year on the podcast, bringing you better interviews with your time, attention, and collaboration. These episodes are not intended for you to listen to an island unto yourself. Get online and share your insights, thoughts, and feedback from the podcast on CBF's Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram pages. We also want you to join the CBF Podcast community through our CBF Podcast listener support page at cbf.net backslash podcast support. We also want to give a special shout out to some of our listener supporters, including the Honorable Charles Qualls, Caroline Bell, Cindy Foldenlore, Trip Hawthorne, Bill Johnson, Carson Fushi, Ralph Stocks, and that generous anonymous donor that keeps giving in honor of CBF Grump. Thanks for listening. Little Rock, Arkansas, Pittsburgh, PA, Ashburn, Virginia, West Yellowstone, Montana, Tamworth, Australia, and Hamilton, Canada. First-time listeners and long-time listeners, we are grateful you are here for the conversation. And before we move on, we need to give a word of gratitude to our annual sponsors, including Zondervan Media Company, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, A Model Ministry, and Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. Finally, and I promise this is it, don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platform. We need to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity. The Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity aims to equip, nurture, encourage, and support men and women for their best service in the kingdom of God. Offering several programs, including master's and doctoral levels, you'll be equipped and encouraged to discover the unique place where your faith reaches out to meet the needs of the world. Now enrolling for fall of 2023, for more information about Gardner-Webb Divinity Program scholarships and grants, call 704-406-3205 and visit gardner-webb.edu. Our guest for this week's CBF podcast conversation is the Reverend Dr. George Mason. George is the pastor emeritus of Wilshire Baptist Church, and he is the founder and president of Faith Commons. George, thank you for joining the conversation. Well, thank you, Andy. Always good to talk with you. 
I think this makes three times you've been on the podcast now. <laughs> that's a that's a rare club, by the way. Wow, you know, it's it's sort of like maybe Tom Hanks and uh, Steve Martin on uh, SNL, right? I mean, you got a few more to go to get there, but yeah, there's not there's a robe that comes with the fifth time on the podcast. Okay, so all right. yeah, yeah, we'll get your <laughs> uh, we'll we'll get your mailing address for for the next couple times. So uh, okay, so, so tell us a little bit about uh, Faith Commons. Faith Commons is um, about five and a half years old now. It's an interfaith organization that I started uh, because I knew that I needed to plan for an encore career when I retired as pastor of Wilshire. And I, you know, sort of perceived in my own spirit that a lot of things for me were moving in the direction of interfaith work uh, after being specifically a Baptist and being very ecumenical in the Christian community, uh, I I realized that uh, I was very concerned for the state of religious pluralism in America and the fact that we were not living up to the ideal of uh, what we had the founders had planned. Uh, we normally talk about that in terms of the separation of church and state uh, when we talk about religious liberty, but I wanted to think about it more broadly and say that religious liberty really is about the respect for and flourishing of all religions without privileging any uh, here in the United States, and that we should be generous toward one another in listening and being uh, changed by one another, because I believe that every religion has a contribution to make uh, to what God is up to in the world. Uh, not only Christians, but also other religions. So as it turns out, uh, my partner, Rabbi Nancy Kasten, and I have been friends for more than 30 years. We uh, came to Dallas about the same time. Her husband is the senior rabbi of Temple Emmanuel. And so we've been colleagues for years. But uh, this was sort of a common vision that we had on my back porch about, I don't know, 10 or 12 years ago when we were talking about what are we going to do next? And uh, when the time came, uh, it really um, seemed right to do this. And so we've been doing it together, uh, sometimes involving uh, a, a friend of ours who's a, a Muslim imam, uh, Omar Solomon. Solomon, uh, Solomon. Uh, and so, you know, it's been a, a really fun uh, exercise. We get involved in education uh, and advocacy work politically. Uh, we feature faith leaders who come to town, uh, and we try to connect people uh, in various ways. So a uh, lot of fun. You and I have worked a little bit together this last year uh, around my other role with uh, ministerial transition. So I know a good bit about the Baptist House at Perkins School of Theology at SMU, but what would you want our audience to know about it? Well, actually, that's another one of my gigs, I suppose. And I, now I don't really have a side gig. I just have all, all side gigs. You know, I don't have one, one gig. Uh, but uh, yeah, so uh, uh, again, about that same time, um, five and a half, six years ago, uh, the dean at, uh, at Perkins School of Theology, uh, who, whom I had known of uh, at Duke Divinity School, where I had served on uh, the Board of Visitors and then on the Baptist House Board, uh, where Curtis Freeman uh, leads that program, uh, he called me and he said, uh, you know, he, he'd come from Duke and he said, we need a Baptist house here. 
uh, will will you come help us do that? And uh, he had already been talking with a New Testament professor at Perkins named Jamie Clark Souls, who is just terrific. Uh, and uh, he, she said, you know, I'll do it, but I, I want George to do it with me. And that was kind and generous of her. And so we kind of made up a title for us for for me. It's lead advisor, uh, and uh, you know, it just means I talk to students and support Jamie and director and recruit and uh, try to give counsel. And I also teach a couple of Baptist courses and a D-Men seminar. So yeah, it's um, it, it's great. And for anyone listening who is curious, uh, it's a really great uh, Baptist education in an ecumenical setting. And you can come for free uh, if you are a Baptist because we have terrific scholarship funds from the, the, the Baugh Foundation. And uh, in fact, we are going to probably start offering uh, stipends, even for master's, uh, master of Divinity students. So uh, it's pretty it's pretty good time to come to seminary and Perkins in particular. We can't go any further without telling about one of our annual sponsors, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky. How does your congregation handle ministry staff leadership for areas such as youth and children's ministry? More and more churches are cultivating these leaders from within their congregations. Going away to seminary is not an option for these persons, yet many desire some level of theological education to better prepare them for their ministry role. In response to this trend, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky has launched the Homegrown Initiative. The Homegrown Initiative offers ministry leaders options for training and growth that fits into their busy schedules. If you or someone else at your church is serving as a homegrown minister and is looking to be better equipped as a minister, visit bsk.edu to learn more about new creative options for growth. bsk.edu. That's bsk.edu. So uh, last last bit before we jump into the book, uh, you started a podcast a couple of years ago for um, you know going through the process of ending your time at Wilshire, uh, the Good God podcast. Um, What's what's the latest with uh, that fun endeavor? Well, it continues. Uh, it's taken different turns. When I started out, I was mostly doing just one-on-one conversations uh, in a studio setting. And uh, it was uh, just interesting people who were uh, doing something related to God and good, uh, right? So uh, somehow it had to do with the common good. And I wanted to know what their faith motivation was at the same time. Uh, I have about 150 of those in the can. <laughs> They're available at faithcommons.org uh, and on YouTube and everywhere you get your podcasts, audio versions as well as video. Uh, but recently I've started going on location and uh, we have a project in South Dallas, which is a deeply uh, underserved community in Dallas. And we are working on food access, uh, healthy, uh, nutritious foods, because in five zip codes in a section of South Dallas, uh, there is not one grocery store that is available to people. Uh, it's the product of years of discrimination, redlining, uh, transportation, highway systems, all sorts of things. But uh, it's um, it's something we've been uh concerned about and we decided to, to do a local project and bring together nonprofits doing urban agriculture, community gardens, uh, local markets, uh, nonprofit markets, 
things of that nature. Lots of people trying to help, uh, but we want to create sustainable communities, not just uh, food pantries to hand out free food, uh, but give people uh, jobs and choices and opportunity to live like everybody else. There is no reason why just because you are poor, you should have less choices than someone who lives in another part of the same city and is wealthier. So uh, I've done some on-location good gods uh, recently, and uh, that's been kind of fun. Well, you, you got another project. It's like you decided to retire, and then you're like, let's get busy. Uh, so you have a new book, uh, The Word Made Fresh. Uh, this book is a collection of 80 of your sermons from over a 30-year pastorate at Wilshire Baptist Church. You wrote, sermons shape the soul of people as well as of that of the person. Faith is personal, but not private. Disciples need disciples to be disciples. We are never a church of one. Tell us the story behind the compilation of this book. When I was retiring, uh, the personnel committee thought about what they might do to uh, honor the 33 years that I've been the senior pastor. And someone came up with the idea. Uh, I actually think it was Doug Haney, my um, uh, longtime music minister, who has since retired as well, uh, that uh, a, a collection of sermons be uh, produced into a book and uh, a copy given to every member of the church. So it sort of started out with that kind of, uh, you know, we'll self-publish approach and uh, make it a coffee table book and, uh, you know, just do it easy and whatnot. And then it began to mushroom and they got some funding for it and they put a team together of uh, four people, including three of my former pastoral residents uh, who read through 1400 sermons, God bless them. Uh, and, and then they, you know, put them all into uh, a format that uh, was common, and then they voted on them, and <laughs> they came up with, I don't know, maybe about 120 uh, sermons, and then they eventually, well, they presented the, the idea on my last Sunday uh, as senior pastor, and then we got busy because uh, uh, we found a publisher, and I'm very pleased to say that Front Edge Publishing who also publishes people like David Gushy, uh, has an imprint called Read the Spirit, and their team has been terrific. They love the idea, and we ended up with about 80 sermons, and uh, they about half of the sermons actually have a QR code included at the beginning of the chapter so that you can go straight to the YouTube channel and watch the sermon when it was originally preached live. Uh, that's kind of a cool uh, addition, I think. Uh, and then there are, it's divided up into 12 sections uh, thematically. And we have uh, quite a few people. Each section is introduced uh, by a pastor, theologian, uh, educator, um, advocate in some way. Uh, most all friends of mine, but uh, names that you would recognize, Curtis Freeman, Alan Walworth, Gary Simpson, Amanda Tyler, um, David Wood, Amy Butler, uh, David King, Bill Leonard, Steve Harmon, Greg Garrett, uh, my partner, Nancy Caston, and her husband, David Stern. Uh, and uh, 
and then you know i think uh, there's an index and all that sort of thing so uh, especially if people are preaching the lectionary it's uh, most of the sermons were lectionary based so there's a lot of resource there for people let's talk preaching um i'm sure over a, a 30 year period your perspectives of what you did in a 20 minute time slot has has changed uh thinking back to your first year at wilshire what do you think your theology of preaching was uh I don't know that I had a real good theology of preaching, to be honest with you. I'm not sure what I would have said at that time. And I'm afraid that my sermons reflect that. <laughs> uh, the, the early sermons, you will find many of them in the first two or three years uh, in there. I I think, um, look, that, this, this is something that we have to be patient with ourselves about. And I, I would say to young preachers who um, are starting out, uh, that, you know, making progress, learning about the craft, working the craft, trying to make uh, incremental progress, be patient with yourself. You've got to get your 10,000 hours in, as they say, uh, in order to begin to feel like you have a sense of confidence and mastery of the, of the craft. But it is a craft. Uh, you... Um, uh, you'll probably be embarrassed years later by the early sermons, but there's nothing you can do to skip forward. You've got to go through that process. And I certainly did. Uh, so uh, it took time. I think uh, that among the differences, Andy, uh, between my early preaching and later preaching would be that I was uh, more intellectual in my early preaching, more academic. And I think that's you know, sort of typical in some ways of those of us who are coming out of seminary. Um, you know, I, I, I come out of getting a PhD and I think I probably was always interested in appealing to people's head. But I think over time I learned to balance head, heart, and hands. Uh, somehow we've got to recognize that the gospel is not just something you think, but it is something that changes your sense of who you are and how you feel about that. And it also changes the way you behave, what you do. Uh, so all of those things need to be present, I think, in, uh, in sermons. And that was something that had to develop for me. How would you describe your, your style of preaching? I know you, you talked about there at the beginning, but you know, what would you say you, you, you capped it off with? What, what style would it fit into? Well, I, I think the main issue is, is there gospel there? Um, somehow, I think it's easy for preachers to get lost in texts and to see them in isolation from the big message. I'm a big believer that uh, this is the theological challenge for us as, as pastors, is to keep in mind that uh, the text is not just the immediate slice of the text, but it's the larger redemptive story of God, and that we actually have to look at each of those texts in light of the larger story. So there's there's that. Uh, I would say that from a style standpoint, uh, there uh, it, it developed into more of a narrative uh, approach to things, but not a narrative where you just retell the the story, because 
you know, people can read. And uh, <clears throat> I think it's, it's more about moving in and out of the ancient text, excuse me, dealing with the current text or current context of where we are and thinking about where this leads us next. So there's sort of three time periods involved. So we have to be faithful to the original story, but we have to recognize that that story is still being carried by the Spirit's presence in the risen Christ who is still among us now. And then there's also a call to what's all this for and where's it heading? And I think being able to help people imagine themselves as being part of God's story is what made the word not just flesh once upon a time, but makes the word fresh over and over again. And that's the point, I think, of this kind of preaching approach. Since 2016, CBF has brought you episodes of interviews with authors and practitioners for conversations that matter. These stories of creativity and innovation have garnered weekly support from around the United States and the world. We are inviting you, the listeners, to join us in connecting with the podcast. Become a monthly listener supporter and receive some perks, including name recognition on the podcast, questions for upcoming guests, free books from the podcast, joining the podcast for an interview, and a VIP experience with the General Assembly podcast guest. There are five levels of listener support, starting at $5 per month. For less than the cost of a pumpkin spice latte, you will be featured by name on the weekly podcast episode. For more information and to join the community of listener supporters, visit cbf.net slash podcast support. Yeah, I think of preaching in different church contexts, right? Um, Serving in different places, demanding a different style of preaching. But over a 30-year period, you were in one congregation, but that congregation certainly changed. So how did the congregation reshape your preaching style? Yeah, it's interesting. When when I came, the, my predecessor had been here for 30 years, and he was from the hills of, of West uh, Western North Carolina, a um, place that you, you would be fond of. Uh, and um, he had a storytelling approach to things. He just could really spin a yarn, right? Uh, and he never he never met a G that he wouldn't drop at the end of a, a word. Uh, he was he was more folksy. Uh, so I followed somebody who had a very different personality and style than I. I grew up in New York City. I'm more uh, oriented toward words and poetry and precision about words. Uh, I write my sermons out. He never did. Uh, and so uh, it was a challenge, I think, to my church to make that transition from one to the other. And again, I think this is something that preachers need to understand when they come into a new congregation. And that is that for a long time, a congregation has tuned its ears to the previous pastor. They are not going to be on exactly the same frequency as the new pastor right away. But part of the challenge and the thing that is beautiful when it takes place is that a pastor learns how they hear and a congregation learns how the pastor speaks. 
and they sort of tune into each other and get on the same frequency over time. So it changes both of us really. You know, there, there's a, a weird dance with preparing a sermon. Uh, of course, there are some who go by only the lectionary while others develop series. And then there is even in the midst of all that, there's the everyday life events that interrupt all of that. Um, tell us about some of the things that happened in your life, the life of the congregation, the greater Dallas Metroplex or, or the world that interrupted what you had planned to preach about. Oh, Wow. Um, well, I mean, I think we all know that 9-11, uh, was one of those things. Um, it was shocking to us all. Uh, I think most preachers are as terrible as it was, we're, we're glad that it happened on a Tuesday because if it happened on a Saturday, we would be so shell shocked. Uh, at least we had a little time during the week to, um, sort of articulate our thoughts and to deal with our emotions about it. But yes, I mean, that was a globally upsetting, uh, catastrophic event that shook uh, the psyche of our nation particularly. And so that that was a big uh, moment. Uh, you know, for us also, uh, there was um, the Ebola comp conflict or controversy uh the, ebola came to dallas through a man who came from liberia liberia and he came to marry a woman in our church and the whole of dallas was hysterical because suddenly ebola was present in our in our city and it turns out to have been because of this engagement that this woman had with this man and so uh, we had quite a bit of work to do as a congregation in protecting her, in trying to calm the city down, in trying to be a gospel presence uh, in our community. And so a lot of preaching around that crisis was uh, significant. And then there, there have been things like the, uh, the shooting of the Dallas, Dallas uh, police officers, <laughs> sorry, and I'm dealing with a tickle in my throat. In, uh, in, in 2016, in July of 2016, uh, there was uh, a Black Lives Matter um, march in Dallas and uh, the, um, unfortunately the, uh, police who were really respectful and walking alongside, keeping order, uh, a, a, a terrible gunman gunned down five of them. And it was just a citywide uh, grief. Uh, and so we had work to do there. Um, of course, Baltham Jean uh, was a young man that was killed African-American man killed by a white woman police officer who entered his apartment thinking it was her own and uh, shot and killed him. That was a major crisis as well in the city. So things have happened in Dallas uh, as well as in the in the country that have really been uh, important to address. And we've tried to do that. 
you know, my, my seminary um, preaching professor taught me that we believe everything that we preach, but we don't preach everything we believe. Um, sometimes there's this tension between what a pastor is processing theologically and where the congregation is theologically. Did you ever feel that tension? And if so, what did you do with it? Yes, I think every pastor feels that pressure, that tension. Um, look, uh, most pastors uh, in our world of more moderate to progressive Baptists and also among mainline uh, Protestant congregations, I would say most pastors are more liberal to progressive than their congregations. Now, there are obviously exceptions, but generally I think that's true. And I think it's true because we spent a lot of time preparing to do this work. And our education took us beyond a first reading of the scripture into a deeper understanding of how it came to be and how it connects to the culture of the time. And then it leads us to thinking about how to read it now, not just as a, an ancient script, but as a script for our lives today. So that we're not only supposed to do what it says, but to do as they did. That is to say, we, we're supposed to adopt the kind of spiritual reasoning we see in the community of Israel and the church in the scripture. And that is often not simple, much more complicated than most people in the pew think. And it requires us to wrestle with matters of social concern. Um, you mentioned earlier that I say in here that the gospel is personal, but it's never private. Uh, it's social as well as individual. And uh, that means that we need to speak into the culture, into politics even, not in a partisan way, but in a way that helps people imagine uh, what God's desire for our relationships are in on this planet uh, and also including the planet. So uh, that will be challenging to people because they spend more time watching their favorite cable news show than they do listening to preaching or probably even reading the Bible. And so many times we will have wrestled with a matter such as, um, in, in our case, say, uh, LGBTQ inclusion. And I honestly changed my mind about this probably more than 10 years ago. Uh, I came to a place where I realized that I could not any longer hold the position I held and that it became pastorally difficult for me to continue uh, under the policies of the church. And we began to have conversation about that. And it led ultimately into full inclusion of uh, LGBTQ persons, uh, not making them special, but making us all equal as uh, children of God in the congregation, using our gifts fully uh, to God's glory. Well, obviously, there were people who knew that I had a previous position and felt betrayed by that. Uh, I would argue that uh, 
you know, we are not meant as pastors uh, to hold the same positions over the entire course of our lifetime. We actually are meant to be open to the spirit like every other member. And conver a conversionist theology includes the pastor, that we have to be converted sometimes too. And some of my friends in our CBF world uh, had arrived at that conclusion earlier than I, and I owe it to them to say thank you for being patient with me and also being a witness to me, uh, because it changed me. We are pausing to tell you about one of our collaborative annual sponsors, A Model Ministry. Are you a church leader who's committed to keeping children safe? If so, then A Model Ministry is for you. We are a registered nonprofit organization specializing in safety education, policy writing, and risk assessment to mitigate child abuse in ministry organizations. We understand that child safety is a top priority for churches, and we are here to create a safe and nurturing environment for all children. Our founders can provide the resources and support needed to implement effective child safety policies and procedures. Visit amodelministry.com to learn more about our services and how we can help keep children safe. Let's take a break to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work. What is social work? At Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, it's empowerment, service, and justice. It's ministry, counseling, and relationship building. It's faith, practice, and community. But above all, it's learning how to help others thrive. Social workers can be found addressing the full scope of the human experience in churches, schools, prisons, government agencies, senior living centers, nonprofits, and Fortune 500 companies. Careers in social work profession are vast and varied. What is social work, you ask? It's much more than you think. Visit gsswstories.baylor.edu to explore more. There is... Um... There's this felt pressure by many ministers, mainly from their peers, that they need to respond to everything happening in the world. And in turn, because so many of the struggles that are happening within our communities, it can feel like every Sunday becomes a, a social justice centric sermon. You know, right. and while I believe our congregations need to hear prophetic words, how did you balance prophetic and pastoral? How did you balance addressing the challenges in our world while also holistically discipling people? I think that's such a terrific question. Um, you're right that many, especially uh, younger clergy, I think, uh, especially in the context of where the church has been in the last, say, 20 years or so, uh, reacting against uh, an approach to the Christian faith that was radically individual and pietistic and did not uh, challenge the ethos, cultural ethos of racism, white supremacy, um, homophobia, all the sorts of things that you would guess. Well, it, it's that disenchantment with what was has led to uh, a kind of reduction of the gospel all over again into being only about uh, social justice. And I would say that there is a, a, a balance that is cruciform. That is, there's a vertical arm to that cross as well as a horizontal one. Uh, that There's a, a sense of our life with God, uh, of our sense of who we are that's not only about what we do, if it's only about what we do, if it's only about just social justice, 
the tendency is for us then to find our identity uh, in a kind of tribal association with people who think like we do, who believe like we do, who gather around common cause. Uh, but if we if we have the proper balance about that and we have a sense of the vital uh, presence of God in our individual lives as well as in the world generally, then we can see the humanity even in our opponents. Uh, we can feel a, a sense of being at home in the world because God is present and uh, we don't have to find our identity in what other people think of us or in our associations. So I, I do think that there's an important balance and you can see it in the text itself. So when you're preaching, I think don't try to force a text to say what it doesn't, but let it be something that opens up to us. And if we preach the lectionary uh, and use it <laughs> generously, we will often find Psalms and other places that we should be preaching more often because they speak to our spiritual life um, personally, as well as uh, a life of advocacy and, and justice. As we think through um, kind of church context, if you will, so much of, of the church landscape is changing. Uh, for many, the role of preacher and pastoral care provider is transforming into Buildings, building maintenance and pathfinder into the unknown territory with fewer resources and smaller staffs. Um, we know the rate of church closures is, is staggering. You know, CBFNC is developing a, an entire initiative around helping churches examine their sustainability and vitality in the coming years. Wilshire, you know, has been blessed as a church with a great amount of resources. If you had pastored uh, in a different church, how do you think you would have shifted your role within the reality of many church landscape today? Wow. Um, <clears throat> I, I said to my two daughters who both have uh, masters of divinity degrees and my son-in-law, uh, who is a pastor of a Baptist church in San Antonio, that I, I, I wish I were 30 years younger because I think they're living in an exciting time. I, I I really think that we're moving through a period of deconstruction and that gets all the attention, but I think there's an opportunity for reconstruction, uh, for uh, the question of what remains, uh, what's important and how do we reconceive of the faith? And I think it's going to be more holistic it's going to be uh, more uh, oriented toward care for the earth and society i believe it will be more uh, respectful of religious pluralism i think we will stop thinking about god as uh, just uh, god's um, the, the presence of power and start thinking more of the power of God's presence, a phrase that my daughter Cameron likes to use. I think that um, we need to be conceiving of God as being part of reality and the author of it, not 
far off and separate from it. Uh, people talk about the loss of transcendence today. Uh, but I think that's somewhat misplaced it, in the sense that what's missing is the sense of where God is present. And yes, there's a loss of the sense that God is somehow over us, uh, but there needs to be a notion more of how God is among us, with us. And so there's a reconstruction uh, that I think we have to do in our discipleship and our theology and te teaching people how to think. And I think that's quite exciting. And it doesn't take big buildings or a massive amount of resources to begin to shift the consciousness of people to what the Christian faith really has to offer. I think there's so much changes happening. And then there's generational change, even among clergy. Um, I have the the privilege of, of journeying alongside ministers as they discern their next most faithful step in vocational ministry. And many of these folks are seminarians that faithfully have their convictions on certain matters, but are struggling with where most churches are today around social and political issues. What's your advice for someone struggling with where they are and where they want their congregation to be? and their capacity to serve, especially in a place that maybe is not exactly where they hope the church would be. Another wonderful point, Andy, I think, to be made to uh, young ministers especially, and even some who are older who are struggling with their context. It's really hard today. <laughs> Sorry, gosh. Really hard today. The politics of this time has become polarizing. And it's very difficult for us to see each other in our full humanity when we have different uh, views of the world and of politics. As pastors, I think we have to know where we stand, but we also get to model for people how to be clear about our own positions and advocate for them but at the same time, not demonize people who are differing from us. It's one thing to have people we can look at as opponents. It's another thing to think of them as enemies. <laughs> so the, the other thing I would say about that is most pastors need to do exegesis of their context as well as the text. Learn who your congregation is. Don't just react to it, but learn who it is. And then try to think about staying one step ahead of them and calling them to incremental change instead of getting disconnected by being so far ahead and being discouraged that they're not making progress. We had your your daughter on the podcast uh, a few months back uh, promoting her great new book. Um she was surprised that um, I said I had read all the sermons in the book. So 80 out of potentially 1,400 plus sermons at one church. Are you serious? Um, you have read them all? You know, I pride myself on reading the content for the people coming on. Wow. Now, if well, you were to give me a pop quiz right now, George, uh, no. I would not I would not be your friend anymore. But so so let's let's have a little fun here at the end as we as we promote this book. 
Uh, can you name the worst sermon you ever preached at Wilshire? Yes, I can, and it's not in the book. <laughs> uh, I, I had a dreadful thought uh, that I thought was clever and creative at the time that I would do a different kind of sermon and I would create a fictional story that I would tell that would illustrate the gospel. And it was some sort of stupid thing about a couple that was on vacation and they ran into trouble with their car or whatever the case may be. But by the end of the sermon, I was the insider who knew what I was up to. And everybody else was looking back at me like, what in the world just happened here? They had no idea. And it was, it, it was terribly misguided. You know, I think it's a shame. Maybe in the appendix, you could have included like the manuscript from that, <laughs> that sermon. You know, you you would create this massive movement within our fellowship in which we own the fact that sometimes it's not our best. Uh, I, I think a lot of ministers struggled, honestly, coming out of the pandemic. We were lucky. We we always live streamed. There was never a pre-record, right? You know, yes. but I had friends who they would do their sermon four or five times until they got it perfect, you oh. know, and that's what went into the, um, you know, pre-record uh, publication on, on Sunday morning during the worship hour. Mm. Um, all right. Last one. I'm sure you've been asked this one a thousand times. Uh, tell us the story uh, around your favorite sermon and why. I guess it's my favorite sermon is the last one. Um, it, um, summarizes a lot of how I felt about this church, the honor of serving it, the hopes I had for it and have still. Uh, it includes art, poetry, personal stories, and an interpretation of the text, uh, which very much has to do with the mutuality of holding each other in our hearts as pastors and congregations. Our guest is George Mason. The book is The Word Made Fresh. You can stay connected with him by visiting georgeamason.com. George, it's always a, a joy to visit with you. Thank you for your decades of service to the church and mentoring so many in their ministerial vocational journey. My pleasure, Andy. Really great to be with you always, and I appreciate you and what you are up to as well. We are grateful for a chance to pause to tell you about one of our annual sponsors, Zondervan Media Group. Explore the depth and beauty of Scripture with the NRSV Updated Edition. With provisions based on new contextual evidence, historical insights, and linguistic precision, this updated edition of the NRSV delivers a translation of Scripture based on meticulous care for accuracy and readability. Learn more about new editions of the NRSV UE from Zondervan at nrsvuebible.com. Okay, that's it. That's our conversation. If you want more, be sure to subscribe to CBF on all major platforms, including iTunes, Amazon Music, Spotify, SoundCloud, and Google Podcast. Don't forget to like and share this episode on your favorite social media platforms. Be sure to support our annual sponsors by visiting their websites. Again, that's Gardner-Webb University School of Divinity, a model ministry, Baptist Seminary of Kentucky, Baylor University's Garland School of Social Work, and Zondervan Media Company. Check out more at cbf.net for more information about church starters, field personnel, advocacy work, and more. 
And I'm not sure if we mentioned that you should join the listener support community at cbf.net backslash podcast support.